0: Good evening, listeners. You're not watching the Super Bowl, are you? It's February 4th. You're turned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. Currently 7 p.m. and on a Sunday, that means only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm DJ Lowlife.
1: And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here... On Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
0: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and if they occur, any opinions expressed on this show are those of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. So tonight we are joined by Sophie Wensman from CEOS. Hi, Sophie.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, anytime. So can you tell us a little bit about what your research involves here at Oregon State?
2: Yeah, so my research is in general on uh, ocean acidification, and specifically it's looking at um, how we can help oysters grow better in the environment that they're living in currently.
0: So it should also be mentioned that you are in uh, the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences which takes into account a lot of different sort of individual disciplines of study, right? So you're looking at it from sort of a biological and a chemical and I guess sort of an ecological perspective.
2: (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I'm in, my discipline is in uh, ocean ecology and biogeochemistry. So it really does encompass all of those different aspects. Yeah,
0: but we sort of need a lot of them to uh, be able to get at sort of the questions that you're asking right?
2: Absolutely, Uh absolutely.
1: Can you take us back a little bit to the area that you're working on in your Ph.D. project and where the impetus for the research came
2: about? Yeah, absolutely. So I work up at Whiskey Creek Shellfish Hatchery in Neatarts Bay up in Tillamook, Oregon. And back in 2007, there was a massive die-off event that happened in which in their 2008 season they had a production of about 75 percent uh, loss in their in their product, and and what they're what they're selling is basically baby oysters, um, and so they focus on on selling the the small oysters and the baby oysters to shellfish growers who then grow the large ones that we then eat and enjoy, um, and so they had a massive die off event, um, and they were really trying to figure out what was going on with that, and um, so what happened was is they. They really tried to figure it out. They thought maybe that there was um, some sort of disease that was going around in the oysters, and they kind of ruled that out. And the next step was to figure out what was going on with the pH of the water um, and what those acidic conditions were like for the oysters. And it turned out that the acidity in the bay was really low at times. Um, And in Oregon, we have a natural event that's called upwelling, um, in which we naturally have this acidified really high nutrient cold water that's coming to the surface, which is natural, but with ocean acidification and man-made or man-caused, human-caused issues that have been happening with rising CO2 and burning of fossil fuels, we've increased the CO2 in that water and really increased the acidity in the bays. And so it's not that the acidity is causing the issue, it's that there's more of it and those events of high acidity are increasing. Um, and so since then, the Oregon State University has really gotten involved there, and we've done a lot of research to figure out exactly what's going on and and what's causing these issues with oysters and to try to help mitigate these impacts. And so there's been a lot of information that's come about since then uh, about acidity and corrosivity of the water that's in Nittarts Bay and how that changes throughout the year. And so now what we're doing is we're looking at, or my project at least, there's still a lot that's going on in the hatchery other than my work, but my work is looking at, so once we have those oysters and we have the babies and they're grown enough that they can be sold to oyster farmers, once you put them in the bay, what happens to them? And so we're, that's kind of where my research is coming about, is how do we take what we know about the the larval oysters and then apply it to when they're growing and make them a better product. Hmm.
0: So just to explain the connection uh, a little more in depth, I guess, how does, so there's acidity, um, increasing acidity in the ocean water. How is that known to affect how the oysters are able to grow and how does it sort of stress them out?
2: Yeah, so so there's a lot of different issues with it. So it's putting more pressure on them um, to keep their shells in a, good state and it's it's stressing them out and and causing them to um so it's it's causing issues in which you have these massive mortality rates of the the larval oysters and so once they get into the bay um you have issues in which the the shells can dissolve and the oysters themselves they need to put more effort into different um parts of their body and so they instead of um, being able to feed normally and and grow their shells and and put effort into becoming healthier oysters, they're now having to put it into different parts of their body just to stay alive. Um, so you can kind of think about it as in um, when you get cold, if you're if you're going to get hypothermia, you want to tr- protect your torso, right? Like that's the thing that they talk about when they. When you're really cold you don't protect your limbs you know if, you're, if your hands are really cold that's okay if your arms are really cold that's okay but you really want to protect that torso of yours and that's what's going to save you and that's kind of what these oysters are doing as well
1: so uh, to take a quick step back this hatchery also like it's not just for the area off the coast of Tillamook that you're working in that the hatchery also provides these larval oysters uh, around the Pacific Northwest and if if these like kind of larval Uh, Oysters aren't doing too well and you try and propagate them outside of the area, then they're also probably not going to do too well. So even though the problem is somewhat localized, it's really exacerbated across the entire coast. So the work that you can figure out here can really help the the hatcheries and then the the sustainability aspect of oysters. Because tell us a little bit about uh, how – uh, like the, the the protein value that they have and the sustainability aspects of oysters, because
2: this is really cool. I didn't know about this. <laughs> yeah, so so um, oysters are actually one of the most sustainable food sources, um, and so what's really great about them is is that they provide all these ecosystem services. They actually filter out the water. Um, and they provide substrate, so they provide hard surfaces for other organisms to grow on. Um, the other day, I actually went out, and on my oysters, there was a, um, a flatfish, and it had all of its eggs that had laid on the oyster shell. And so, oh. so it was, it was kind of sitting there. And It was so cool because I was just like, "This is really true." That you know, it's, it was a very physical example of how important these oysters are to the ecosystem around them. And so so they not only provide a hard surface for other things to live on and, and breed on, <laughs> apparently, um, but also they, they filter the water. They help with um, uh, different issues that happen. So, so when you have uh, toxic algal blooms, they help to um, they consume those algae. And so at that point you wouldn't want to eat them, but, but they, they are helping to eat them and, and get them out of the bay and get them out of that natural system. Um, and so, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. So the, the oysters that are grown at Whiskey Creek Shellfish Hatchery, they are sold all over the um, Oregon coast specifically. Um, I'm not sure what they're – I don't know the exact distance that they range, but I know they sell a lot in Oregon. Um, and uh, they're, they have a, a huge impact. And so, and so upwelling is not just uh, localized to Neatarts Bay, and so it is really an issue – all over the Oregon coast, all over the Pacific Northwest, where we have that upwelling zone in the summer and where we have these really uh, corrosive conditions to the oysters. Um, and so so you're absolutely right. The, those oysters, it's really important that they're healthy when they're going out into the bay. It's healthy while they're in the bay. And trying to make that happen is really important.
0: Cool. So can you tell us a little bit more about your project and how... Um, you're trying to set up a couple of different treatments, as I understand, to uh, maybe make the oysters grow a little bit better.
2: Absolutely. So it's kind of cool because we're kind of doing what nature already does in a different part of the world. And so in Chesapeake Bay on the East Coast, um, the oysters that grow there, the type that grow there are they naturally create these oyster reefs. And so what we think happens is that because there are these old dead shells. When you have these corrosive waters that come in, you have these old dead shells that are dissolving, and when they dissolve, so for anyone who doesn't know, uh, oysters are made up of calcium carbonate, and so it's a it's a mixture of calcium and carbonate that are bonded together, and they make these hard shells. And so you can both make those shells and you can destroy them. And so so when those shells dissolve in these corrosive conditions, um, that is releasing this calcium and carbonate. And carbonate and that release of those things actually helps to uh, create a buffer for the water. It's almost like an N-acid in your stomach. Um, and so just like taking an N-acid, when you release these, these uh, calcium and carbonate ions, you're helping the other oysters that don't like those corrosive conditions to improve their conditions. And you're, you're making that water less corrosive to them. Um and so what our idea is is you know figuring out how um we could apply a similar situation on our coast where we have oysters that we cultivate that don't grow in these reefs. And so they don't have that same situation where you have these old dead oysters that are dissolving and providing this extra source of a buffer and an acid. Um, And so what we've done is we've created almost an artificial reef. They're called shell plantings. They're not really reefs, um, (laughs) but I like to think of them as reefs. Um, So they're they're these shell plantings, basically bags of dead oyster shells um, that are the same type of oyster that we grow. And so what we do is we take these bags of oysters and we put them down on the mud flat in Nittarts Bay, and then we'll place living oysters on top of them, and we'll uh, allow them to grow for a while, and then we'll take them back to the lab and see how they've grown and how their condition is looking. And so we're actually looking at the health of those oysters.
1: So even in the even in an oyster's death, at least for this project in particular, the oyster shells, since they're also made out of calcium carbonate, are still very useful to any of the living oysters that are around. but yeah. since, these oysters don't really have that kind of base foundation like those in Chesapeake Bay, you're hoping to like artificially create that kind of environment to help buffer the, the stream water or the ocean water yes. in that area.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really the goal of our project is to see if that, if that helps. And, and there's been some work that's been done to see if, um, and some, some oyster farmers will put um, shells out and in the hopes of doing that kind of thing, but they're, uh, at least, to my knowledge, has not been this kind of a study to see if there is a quantitative um, effect by these by these shells, at least on this coast.
0: Right. So, you guys are also you guys have instruments set up inside the bay that are continuously recording the conditions of the carbonate system in the water. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. So, we have a, a really great system um, that's monitoring. The water chemistry, so it's monitoring pH, it's monitoring uh, the carbonate level, it's monitoring saturation, corrosivity, all of those things, and so it's a really great resource for us to be able to use the real-time data that's coming in from the bay and see exactly what those conditions are when we're taking these oysters and when we're growing these oysters. And my oysters are located; it's really lucky. Um, that, the, that the instrument is where it is because I am able to grow my oysters very close to where this instrument is. And so the water that it's taking in and measuring is very close to or almost exactly the same as the uh, water that the oysters that I'm growing are experiencing.
1: And if, you, if the listeners would like to see a little bit of some field pictures, uh, you can check out our blog, and it has some really great photos. There's also a link to Sophie's uh, blog that she curates herself, which has a lot of really, really good pictures to like put this into perspective of, you know, these rebar pieces sticking <laughs> out of the ground and like bags of, of oyster shells that they that they have to like literally strap down so they don't like fly or float away in the ocean. Uh, it does not seem very easy to keep oysters in a
0: single spot.
2: Yes, yes, it's definitely, there's been a lot of zip-tie use in, in this project. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: useful. And there's a video, a really cool video, okay. showing uh, Sophie and a couple other, um, I guess, professors and CEOs who are involved in this project as well.
2: Yes, so the uh, co- uh, co-PIs on this project are, are my advisor, Alyssa Scheel, and then um, Dr. George Walbesser and Dr. Adam Kent, um, and they've been really helpful in this whole process.
1: For those listeners just joining us, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. It is, uh, We're speaking to Sophie Wensman, who's just described uh, a little bit of the work that she's doing in East Hearts Bay, looking at uh, kind of oyster health and looking at specifically ocean acidity and how that's impacting their current health. But let's talk a little bit more about your background and your love for, for this work, because you're not just doing... Uh, let me rephrase it this way. You consider yourself an ocean chemist. Yes, I do. So tell us a little bit, because you have really two projects. So briefly introduce us to the second project uh, and and like what it really means to be an ocean chemist.
2: Absolutely. Um, so I have always loved chemistry. I think it's fascinating. I really like getting down to the nitty gritty of how things work. Um, and so one thing that's really cool is that oysters, as they grow, they're actually recording this ocean chemistry that they're living in, and so their their shells, even though they're made up of calcium and carbonate, oysters aren't perfect. And so when they're calcifying and um, we're making their shell, they uh, incorporate all sorts of other things in it as well. And so they'll incorporate different metals like uranium and um, and uh, like potassium, uh, potassium, and ions and, that yeah, are like yeah all kinds of water things. Column. And and so. Um, and boron, and you know all sorts of different things, and so zinc. Um, <laughs> just throwing a few out there. You love the metals. Um, I do. I really like them. I think they're interesting. Um, we never
0: think about them really as being in seawater, <laughs> but they're just present in very, very small amounts. Exactly. Right? Yes.
2: Yeah. So it's a naturally naturally occurring thing. That this isn't have them you know in, nuclear in, proliferation
0: right. uranium. Right. <laughs> yes.
2: No. This is this is natural. This happens. Um, it's just what happens when when rocks dissolve that have these metals in them and. Um, that's a very natural process and, and not a scary thing. Um, and so what's cool about it is that um, in, these, in these oysters, the, what they're incorporating and how they're incorporating it with, the, with respect to these metals and different other elements is that some of them provide a means of tracing this water chemistry, um, or they provide a proxy. Um, and so what I'm using is I'm using uranium, which is natural, Um, And I'm actually looking at um, how that oyster can trace carbonate chemistry in the water. Um, And so what happens is is that you have these uh, uranium molecules that are floating around, and there's kind of three flavors of uranium that we dominantly find in the water. Um, And two of them are incorporated into oyster shells, and one of them is not. And so, what's great is that when you have uh, less carbonate, you preferentially make these two species that are incorporated into uh, oyster shells. And so, when you have a lower carbonate solution or system, which would be when you would have corrosive water conditions, um, you actually end up with uh, a smaller amount of uranium, or I'm sorry, a larger amount of uranium that's incorporated into um, these oyster shells. And so by tracing the concentration of uranium within these shells as they're growing, we can actually see and trace what that chemistry looks like.
1: And just how far back in history can you go?
2: It will depend on how old my oysters are. So right now I'm working with oysters that are just about two years old. Um, so they'll be able to measure, uh, two years of history, um, in terms of how far it could be possible to go, uh, it would depend on when you started the project um, and, and how well you understood how the link between the, the water chemistry and the concentration of uranium, which can be kind of complicated.
1: And I guess this is the crux of why your project is in two parts, because we have a really decent idea if we look back you know, hundreds or thousands of years using these uh, uranium flavors or different isotopes and their ratios. But we don't have a really good constraint on exactly how it works. So this uh, this pr- current project off of Tart's Bay is like a, a kind of proof of concept where we're we're measuring everything very precisely to get a very tight fit on all on how the data should work. Yes. So when we apply other data sources, you know how does it fall on that line that we can control really well? And that way we can kind of back-calculate really, really sexy things about <laughs> about you know, what the ocean chemistry was way back when.
2: Exactly, yeah. And so uh, what's really great is that we have this system, the Berkeleyator, as it's commonly called, um, <laughs> that is measuring that uh, ocean chemistry and that water chemistry in Neatart's Bay in real time. And so we're actually able to link that concentration that we're finding in the shell with the Berkeley data. Um, and so that's kind of our, our means of getting at something. So if we, if we only know one side of the equation, we really can't understand what that water chemistry is. Like if I just have the concentration of uranium, we don't have a good enough constraint on what that means in terms of the water chemistry. And so we really need to understand both the concentration and the water chemistry at the same time to be able to put them together and then use them in other places.
0: That's cool. So... Essentially, higher uranium to calcium ratio. Basically, we think that means oysters more stressed because it can't just take the calcium carbonate and mineralize that because there's less of it around. It's got to be more desperate and just like, oh, I'll take the uranium instead.
2: <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's 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 very similar to that. Um, so with these with these uranium species. Um, This is getting a little jargony, but there's – so there's three species, this uranium monocarbonate, bicarbonate, and tricarbonate. And so um, it's basically, if you think about it, it's like uranium with one carbonate ion, uranium with two carbonate ions, or uranium with three carbonate ions. And so um, it's going to be easier for those organisms to incorporate – the one-carbonate and two-carbonate species because those bonds are just going to hold less tightly. Um, and so it's going to be easier to bring that in and use it in their shell. Um, and the tricarbonate species is just too hard for them to do it, and it's, they just don't. They can't do it. And so um, with, these, with this concentration, you know, you, when you have um, lower concentrations of uranium, you're going to make species preferentially that have less carbonate in them and so you're going to make more of the the monocarbonate, the one carbonate, and two carbonate species. Uh, okay,
0: gotcha. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Might get a little
2: jargony. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> That's good. I'm sort of following it. And <laughs> my chemistry's not all that wonderful. <laughs> um, so, how do you actually measure this?
2: Uh, so we're we're using something kind of cool. So it's uh, it's called laser ablation mass spectrometry. Um, and so breaking that down, um, we're Shooting a laser beam uh, across this oyster shell, um, and what that does is when you when you hit the laser um, against the the surface of the oyster shell, it will um, kind of uh, turn the the stuff that's on the oyster that's solid into this aerosol. So it'll it'll uh, bring it up into the into the air, and then it gets passed along to this other machine that's actually measuring the concentration of uranium that's in that shell and so we can get very fine um, resolution we can look really carefully along the surface of this oyster um, where we can see the growth and so they have this piece of them that that records their entire life history it's the it's the hinge of them and so it's where they're opening Um, and what's cool about them is that they they're almost like tree rings Um, so when you cut them you see this, these lines almost uh, that look like tree rings um, and it's just the, the calcium carbonate and how it grows at different stages of their life and um, what it's incorporating and all of that stuff but what's cool is that if you uh, move this laser along that surface you're going to actually get the entire life history of this oyster uh, which is really cool to be able to actually look at and see what's going on
0: nifty <laughs> shoot it with the n- Big fancy laser.
2: It's very fun. Nice.
0: So I don't imagine you realized when
1: you were a child that you were going to be shooting lasers at oysters (laughs) and measuring uranium species in oysters. So tell us a little bit. Was oyster your favorite food as a kid, or was it more chemistry?
2: Well, actually, it's really funny. I was really worried when I got here because I had never eaten an oyster. And I was thinking to myself, how can I do this project if I don't like oysters? Like I have to like them now, right? Like I just have to. So I was very relieved. Oh, I do, I do. I'm very lucky in that I I I tried them and I and I actually do like them. So so that was a relief when I actually found that out.
0: (laughs) So funny if they were just like, yeah, I don't.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'll grow them, but I won't eat them.
1: So your love for science developed when you were pretty young. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how you got involved with science to begin with.
2: Yeah, so I I, um, really fell in love with science because of my my mom. So she um, was always really intrigued by science and loved being in nature. Um, And so she homeschooled my brother and I um, until uh, until I was in seventh grade. Um, And my brother was entering high school and... um, so she got us involved in all sorts of projects. So we were we were monitoring water quality and, and monitoring bald eagles, um, all in uh, New Hampshire where we were growing up. And um, we became involved in a uh, University of New Hampshire cooperative extension um, uh, marine docent program, um, which is, is uh, with the Sea Grant that's out there. Um, and... Um, so, and I was actually eight at the time, which I think at the time, I don't know if that's still the same, but I, I was the youngest <laughs> docent at the time. So I was in a in a room with lots of other people that were much older than me. and so it was really fun to interact with people of all sorts of ages and and learn about the ocean and and understand really what the ocean was about and everything like that. So it was
0: really fun. And then it sounds like you've done a lot of sort of educational experiences um, growing still while you were growing up. Is that correct in terms of like, you know, outreach and science? Yes.
2: And so during the um, marine docent program, we actually went to uh, elementary and middle schools all over the state and taught them about marine science. Um, and then I was also really involved at the Seacoast Science Center in Rye, New Hampshire, um, and I was a Rocky Shore naturalist and camp counselor there until I was 16. And um, what
1: age of children were you counseling at this time?
2: <laughs> so it, it varied at the time. Um, so if I was, uh, if when I was a camp counselor, I was uh, working with, either 12 to or 12 months to two years old or three to five year olds um, which was really fun to be able to take them outside and, and get them already really excited about nature and being on the rocky shore and turning over rocks and seeing all the green crabs there there is never a, a end to the excitement about green crabs that I can tell you <laughs> not with three-year-olds
1: so that was a pretty influential experience that you were kind of, helping kids uh, get excited about science, but especially with marine science. So uh, pass us forward a little bit into what you decided to study for your undergraduate degree.
2: Yeah, so I kind of had this dilemma in my brain of how I wanted to spend my life. And I really loved education on one side, and I really loved science on the other. And so I I ended up going into um, secondary science education, and so my, my bachelor's degree is actually in, I have a Bachelor of Science in Education. Um, and so at the university, I studied chemistry and earth science. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my initial trage- trajectory, is to go into uh, like a middle school or high school science.
0: Curriculum. And then it sounds like you had sort of a, a transformative experience. Uh <laughs> Did, Can you talk yeah. about that? So, so, you were initially planning <laughs> on an education-based career. Um, what made you say, "Oh, I could, I could be a you know, go into chemical oceanography"? or something? Yeah.
2: So, I uh, it was actually very funny. So, I I happened to um, be selected for an internship um, at a chemical company in Michigan, and um, it was. It was this experience that I had no anticipation of, of getting and, and then it kind of got got sent into my inbox on my email and I went, well, this is cool. Um, <laughs> and so I, I've always been someone who just kind of did the next thing that was presented and, and um, whatever kind of opportunities came along, even if they were scary or I wasn't sure if I should take them, I, I kind of did them just because I was like, well, I don't know what the experience is going to be like. Um, and so I ended up doing this internship, and, and while I was there, I was really integrated into a laboratory setting, and it was the first time I was doing really hardcore research, and um, I actually fell in love with it, and it was really fun, and it wasn't perfect because I, I wasn't outside, and, and I was just in a lab, so it, so it wasn't quite right, but but it kind of got me thinking of like, well, how do I incorporate th- incorporate this into my life now? So I, I love the education, but how do I incorporate research now? And I was struggling with this, and I don't know why I did this one day, but I went home, and it happened to be Shark Week. and <laughs> And for people who know me, they know me as someone that's very afraid of sharks, and so not someone who would turn on Shark Week. And for some reason, I did. And while I was watching this there was this person who was doing water quality sampling on this boat. And I was watching, and all of a sudden I had this kind of light bulb moment in which I went, well, I could do that. And I went, okay, new plan. I'm going to go study oceanography. And, <laughs> and, and that was kind of – it just kind of happened in this weird, like – It was kind of a slow transition and then a very rapid one all at the same time. Um, And so, yeah, so I I kind of had this idea to change what I wanted to do. And I still wanted to do education. And I was far enough along that I didn't want to get out of education. And I really liked teaching. So I felt like I still wanted to do that. But I thought, you know, well, what I really want to do is I want to do research and teach. And how am I going to do that? And, And my answer was okay, I'm going to become a professor, and that's what I want to do. And so that's kind of what's brought me to this position through um, doing an REU research uh, experience for undergraduates internship at uh, the University of Washington, Um, and then going on a research cruise from Hawaii to Alaska for 36 days because of that internship. Um, And then that kind of led me to... um, Joel Bloom's lab at the University of Michigan uh, where he does a lot of work with trace uh, mercury geochemistry and being able to trace mercury through the environment. And, and that was what turned me on to, to metal chemistry and, and that was what really excited me about all of that. And yeah, so it's it was this whole very strange procedure of, of just kind of falling my way into the next thing.
1: Can we go back to the The lab experience where you were doing uh, mercury research—you were pretty much doing a nine-to-five lab technician job. You were running people's samples. So, talk us through a little bit of that and why you decided maybe that wasn't really for you.
2: Yeah. So, I I loved that job. It was it was the best thing for me. Um, So, I I actually applied um, for an undergrad, or I'm sorry, for a graduate program. Um, in my senior year, uh, when I first started working for uh, for Dr. Joel Bloom, and uh, I didn't get in, and so I kind of had to like pick myself up and go, okay, well, what do I do for this year? In terms of you know, how do I how do I continue with this? And and it just so happened that um, that the people at Joel Bloom's lab were looking for someone to kind of fill in a need for a research assistant to run all of these samples. Um, and so they, they offered the position to me because I'd been working there for about a year at that point and, and really enjoyed being at the lab. And so I took the job on. And um, it, was, it was this really wonderful experience um, of getting to learn how to use all of these instruments in a very unique way and, and become very independent with the work I was doing. And I loved all of that work. But there was something missing and, and I was realizing as I kept going that I wanted to use my brain more and I wanted to to come up with those ideas and and to be the person that, you know, there's something so exciting about being the only person that knows something about what you're doing at that moment in time. You know, being that first person to know that one thing, even if it's for two seconds, it's still that very exciting feeling of like, wow, I know something so original and and it was just such an exciting idea that I was missing at that point, and so I it, I had never not thought that I wanted to, uh, or I would never I I'd, I'd always wanted to go to grad school after that that experience of of oh hey I'm gonna watch Shark Week, um, <laughs> <laughs> but but that really confirmed that idea for me, and I think that was one of the reasons that I really loved that job is that it really did you know make sure that I was sure about wanting to go to grad school and and it was true and I did want to go to grad school and so that's kind of how I ended up applying again and um and it happened to be that the people that uh had funding were also people that I wanted to work with and and it just kind of all coalesced into this wonderful experience and and I talked to uh Alyssa Sheel here at at Oregon State and and she had funding for me and um really liked that I had worked with a mass spec before, which I got the opportunity to do in Joel Bloom's lab, and and so I, I ended up accepting a position here as a graduate student in her lab, which has been nothing but wonderful.
0: That sounds great, and then you got to be, uh, to live by the ocean again, I guess.
2: Exactly, yes, yes, it's uh, being in, so I was, I was in New Hampshire for the first 17 years of my life, and then moved to um, Michigan and, and spent another seven there. And then, uh, yeah, now I'm back on the, on the coast, and it's really nice. I've definitely missed it.
0: <laughs> yeah, so um, what would you say, as a part of a tradition that we tend to do here on inspiration dissemination, um, what advice would you have for anyone, maybe like a, a past self or any undergraduate students who might be listening about uh, who might be interested in attending graduate school or taking that next move for their careers?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the biggest thing that has happened to me is that I've I've always taken kind of the scary path and and done the experiences that maybe weren't in line with with what I thought would be the right path. For me, you know, so so going back to the secondary science education, you know, like taking a summer and going doing a research internship in a chemistry company, like, that wouldn't, you know, necessarily do anything for me in my future except for to give me this real world experience that I could kind of talk about in a classroom. But, so it, so it didn't really necessarily make sense for me to go, but I was excited about the opportunity and just kind of like, I just went for it. And so, and every time I've done that and done kind of the scary thing as opposed to the safe thing, it's always been a good thing. And even if it's not perfect, you know, I, I was living, you know, in Michigan and, and, you know, I love the ocean. So being landlocked is hard. Um, you know, but, but being in Michigan and, and, and working at a chemistry company inside all day, like, you know, that wasn't perfect, but it still started me somewhere. And so, so I think taking the scary choice is sometimes really good um that would be that would definitely be a piece of advice and the second piece of advice is if you don't get into grad school the first time apply again it, it you know I, I know so many people that can get discouraged by that but you know i i mean i'm i'm proof of this is that you can get in even if you get rejected the first time i i know people that got rejected the first four times because they wanted to work with a specific person, and that person just didn't have funding at the time. And so they got rejected four years in a row, and then their fifth year that they applied, that person got funding for them. And so it's not that you're not good enough. It's not that you can't go to grad school. I think almost everyone can go to grad school, and I I think it's just something that you have to find the right fit and not get discouraged if you get those rejections at first.
1: That's that's a really powerful piece. I, I think it's Yeah, I think it's, that's great it's, advice. Yeah, it's it's an ugly secret not really a secret in I think academia, but you know, if there's no money for a student or if there's no money for a project, you know, as good as the student may be uh, you know, there, there's nothing you can really do. So keep trying. Uh, I'm I'm not surprised that your curiosity really forced you and didn't let you stop <laughs> studying chemistry and figuring yes. out what you love. So, <laughs> uh, so I applaud you for that. Um, the second tradition that we have that we finish the show on is we ask you for a song. So, what song did you choose and why? <laughs>
2: uh, so I chose David Bowie's Starman, and uh, David Bowie was actually the first album that i bought with my own money and i've continued loving david bowie ever since and you know everyone you know the the typical icebreaker question is you know like oh what what uh musician would you like to go see in concert if you know you could see anyone in history and my answer is always david bowie it's always got to be him
1: nice well for anyone listening that hasn't heard david bowie you are going to hear Starman as a request from Sophie Winsmith. Thank you so much for your time. You've been very gracious, and yeah, we hope, thank you, Sophie, we hope to have more of your lab group on the show as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for it. having me.
0: Guys. <laughs>